sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. Brian Broom's dad used to threaten to hit Brian so hard he'd fly into the atmosphere if Brian didn't conform to his father's ideal of Black masculinity. Brian is with us today to talk about the memoir that takes its title from that threat and turns it into something closer to a boast. It's called Punch Me Up to the Gods. He's here to talk about, among other things, growing up gay and black, the pressure society puts on young black men, getting sober, and following in the literal footsteps of James Baldwin. And then we have a wonderful way of closing the episode, a conversation with Judge John Hodgman about his gloriously empty-headed kitty, Lolo. Brian Broom, coming right up. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I was wondering if we could start off uh, with a reading from the book. Sure. Um, This is uh, the very beginning of the book. Um, It's a story about a little boy called The Initiation of Tuan, and this is just a few paragraphs from that. I'm standing at the bus stop in McKeesport, Pennsylvania, on the black end of town. It's a hot but overcast summer day. To my left is a young man mesmerized by his cell phone. He laughs out loud periodically while staring into its depths. Then his thumbs fly like hummingbird wings over the keyboard. He is dressed like all the other young men around here in the newest iteration of distressed jeans with dark white tennis shoes and a shirt with a sports logo emblazoned across the front. I notice him only because a little boy wearing an almost identical outfit in miniature is circling around and around his feet like a toy train. The toddler, who is doing all the things toddlers do with their newly found feet, pitches forward with full force onto the sidewalk, enormous toddler head first. The women around me gasp and so do I. Some of them take halting steps toward the boy. Pearls, are clutched while we wait for the young man, who I assume is the boy's father, to pick the boy up and tend to him. The boy's wails are high-pitched and ear-splitting. The child's name is Tuan. Shake it off, Tuan, the young father says, glancing briefly down at the boy and then turning back to his phone. Tuan sits down on the sidewalk only to howl more loudly. The women around me shift their eyes from the child to the father and back again. Their worried looks are digging deep creases between their brows. They exchange disapproving glances with one another. The boy's screams are now rattling his voice box and his mouth is open so wide that his little face appears to be tearing itself apart. As I watch the boy sitting on the sidewalk, I can remember what real crying feels like. I can't remember what real crying feels like. I can only remember the tactics I employed to suppress it. Tuan's father picks the boy up off the ground and places him on the bus stop bench before turning back to the flickering lights inside his phone. 
Antoine has no interest in shaking it off. Be a man, Tuan, the boy's father says, out of the corner of his mouth, eyes steady on his phone. Tuan has no interest in being a man. And his screaming continues. Tuan's father kneels down, grips the boy by the shoulders, and looks him straight in the eyes. Stop crying. Stop crying. Be a man, Tuan. Be a man. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. That's a perfect place to start. It is the beginning of the book. It is. And I wonder if maybe a a good first question is to ask, what role does Tuan play in this book? Um, You know, Tuan is a a real person. You know, this uh, really happened uh, when I was catching the bus. Um, And I think um, this real person out there somewhere doesn't know that he became symbolic for me. Um, in terms of being a man in this culture, in terms of specifically uh, being a Black man in this culture. And the ideas around who you are supposed to be and how you are supposed to represent um, in public. Um, The public-facing Black man is supposed to be strong and stoic um, and unemotional, um, you know, a, a tiger in bed, good at sports, you know, all these things that I grew up um, uh, with these expectations, you know, uh, that's how to conduct yourself like a man. And I was none of those things. Um, and so that's kind of where the book jumps off. He is um, uh, symbolic, I think, of uh, a lot of Black boys uh, in American culture who grew up with this idea that they are supposed to be masculine above all things, above all, above all other things. And leads us right into another question, which is, why is the book called Punch Me Up to the Gods? This question, yeah, people ask me this question a lot. And, <laughs> you know, having a, having a memoir is very strange because people ask you, you know, people, after they read it, they, they want to know, they want to dig deeper into, yeah. you know, who you are and, and why you wrote the book. And Punch Me Up to the Gods, um, and, and when, when people ask me this question, I have to tell them immediately, you know, no matter who they are, that my father used to punch me. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a strange thing. You know, they're, they're, they're asking like this sort of innocuous question, like, what does the title mean? And yeah. I'm like, well, you know, my dad used to, used to punch me. Um, you know, punch me up to the gods is, is kind of a, um, it's a, uh, rewording of, you know, something that he used to say, which is like, I will punch you so hard as to send you back to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think punch me up to the gods is kind of a challenge. Like, go ahead, do it, you know? Um, and it's not going to change anything and I'm going to be right back, you know, the way I was before you punched me. So, um, yeah, that's what the title means. I like to think of it as a defiant sort of challenge, you know, punch me up to the gods. In a way, to me, there's sort of a triad of tension in the book. There's you and your father and Tuan, like these competing versions of black masculinity, competing, uh, competing stages. All of you are in different stages and all of you are kind of in communication with each other. Mm-hmm. And I do want to talk a little bit about your dad. Um, you know, his violence is, is a little extreme, let's say. Uh, one thing I noticed is uh, in his version of, you know, what I, I guess gets called the talk, you know, and Tanhisi Coates's 
memoir, he talks about his parents saying they were going to beat him so he doesn't die. We're going to beat you so that you understand. Don't behave that way because you'll die. Your Mm. father says something different. Yeah, he says, um, you know, I would rather kill you myself than have a white person do it. Um, And that was the, you know, that was the message that I grew up with, you know. Um, And it was, you know, like ta Coates says, like, it was this thing that I think a lot of Black children grow up with, like, a strict and um, aggressive upbringing uh, in order to keep you safe. Um, You know, obviously... You don't know that at the time, like when you're a child, you just think your parents are, are mean. But there is definitely a uh, something in Black culture where, you know, I'm going to be as tough on you and as hard on you as you can, because when you go out into the world, you know, white people are going to, you know, punish you for being Black, basically. So I'm going to teach you how not to fall outside the bounds of, uh, you know, proper behavior, because, you know, if you do the slightest thing wrong, you're going to be punished for it. It's just the part I'd rather kill you than see yeah. that that's the part that seems extreme. Yeah. I mean, my father, his, his version of like masculinity was ownership. Like mm-hmm. he didn't love his children. He owned them. He didn't love his wife. He owned her, you know, I mean, when he would say that it was usually in response to something that I had done, you know, that was, um, crossing that line of, you know, where I would be unsafe, you know, it was less of a threat and more of a warning, mm. you know, um, cause you know, his, his belief was white people will kill you. And before I let that happen, I'll kill you myself. Um, so I really did take it. I mean, at the time when I was a kid, I, t- I took it as a threat, but as I, as I've grown older, um, I recognized that it was more of a warning. Mm-hmm. The book does start off with you as a little kid at about Twan's age, I'm guessing. Um, no. Well, I was, I was older. Okay. I was older. Like Twan was a toddler. Okay. Um, you know, I think I, I don't know. I don't remember where I started off. I think I start <laughs> off. I'm in like, I think I'm in, uh, well, the first story starts off. I think when I'm in like maybe the fifth or sixth grade. And right away to me, you have a unusual sense of self-awareness. You're just heightenedly aware of what everyone's thinking about you and how you mm-hmm. should behave. Yeah. And you you have a limited selection of models for that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that, you know, uh, uh, when, you, when you grow up, um, you know, African-American in this culture, and I was being sent to a mostly white school, you do become hyper aware because you, you kind of like, you know, you're aware of your blackness. You're, and I was aware that I was different than, you know, many of my uh, peers, you know, my, my black peers. So I was just on the outside of an outside. So I was super aware of like how I behaved. I was very self-conscious. Like I just wanted to disappear um, into the, 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 you know, the background. Um, But I found out I couldn't do that just because of how, you know, because racism doesn't let you disappear at all. Um, homophobia doesn't let you disappear. And I was just kind of weird on top of all that. So I wasn't able to disappear. And even in my trying to disappear, I made myself a target in a lot of ways. I think a story that, that captures a lot of that 
is a story that you you have a chapter about being in a spelling bee. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I want to ask you about this year's spelling bee. But oh, first, yeah. I want to hear about yours. I think it'd be good good to get get a sense of what has and hasn't changed. Let's say. Yeah, I was. Um... I was I wasn't very good at many things. I wasn't very many good good at many things that people expected me to be good at, as uh, um, such as like sports. I was terrible. Um, I wasn't cool. I wasn't. I mean, there was nothing about me that was acceptable. Except I was a really good speller. You know, <laughs> um, I could see a word, and I, I did a lot. I was a voracious reader, but I, I, I would see a word, and it would just be implanted like in my head. Um, and I sort of by accident ended up, you know, in the school spelling bee. Well, I guess it wasn't an accident. I thought, I thought it was an accident at the time. Um, I wound up being in the spelling bee and I was, you know, nervous about it at first. Um, but then as time went on, you know, I was like, I, I, it was, I remember that story. The thing that sticks out to me about that story is that for just a moment in time, I felt like I deserve to be alive. Like I deserve to take up space. Look at me spelling these words. Um, and if you read the book, you find out how the spelling bee ends. But, um, I remember, you know, being made fun of for, you know, being a good speller, um, by my black peers, you know, um, who thought that that was, you know, that was, uh, I was trying to be like white by, you know, engaging in, in, you know, spelling and, and writing and things like that. Um, and also it didn't fit in with the idea of what, you know, boys are supposed to do. You know, I think that idea is changing now, but at the time it was like, boys are supposed to play sports. They're supposed to be cool. They're supposed to, you know, throw rocks and, and be little hellions. I wasn't that. Um, so the spelling bee was my time to shine. Like I was so, you know, proud of myself because I, um, you know, I, I had made it. Um, and then of course, you know, you know what happened. Uh, <laughs> but that little girl, uh, uh, you know, I shouldn't, uh, uh, young woman, I don't know. How old is she? How old is she? Like, um, she, In the book? Uh, no, no, no. Zaila. Her name is pronounced Zaila. And she's 14. Zaila Avant-Garde, 14 years old. Yeah. Okay. Like, that is, uh, uh, I, I I jumped for joy when I when I read that. I mean, it, and it's not like she's the first you know black person to win a spelling bee, but you know she's uh, obviously this uh, young woman who is like sure of herself. She's also like a basketball star. She's all the things that I couldn't be, you know, <laughs> uh, growing up. Yeah, because I couldn't play basketball. I desperately wanted to, um, and I, uh, I you know, in the spelling bee, obviously, you know, was my one moment to shine. And I screwed it up. But so I look at her and I feel tremendous, uh, uh, you know, pride. And I'm also jealous of her like so much, like, mm. uh, yeah, I mean, uh, she's doing all the things that I wanted to do when I was a kid. So I wanted to talk to you about how that particular story again, sort of encapsulates a phenomenon that, that is a tension throughout the book, which is that your own hyper self-consciousness and then the white gaze on top of that. Right. Like a yeah. line in that story that really stuck out at me was something you say about a teacher who looked at you so hard, was so sure you were cheating. You began to wonder if you were cheating yourself. Yeah. You know, I was I grew up in an environment where I wasn't supposed to be smart. 
You know, smart was the last thing that anybody expected or wanted from me. Um, and so this teacher um, was constantly accusing me of cheating um, and who was doing my homework for me. And, you know, uh, and she said it so much. She said it so much that I really started to believe that, you know, studying was cheating. You know, I started to believe that I was somehow cheating and didn't know it. And what's interesting about that, too, is that, you know, I participated in a panel recently and there were other African-Americans on the panel. And I found out this is the first time I've ever heard it. Many, many black students are accused of cheating, like uh, just about everybody, you know, on this panel was like, yeah, that happened to me, too. You know, um, and I was, you know, it's it's. It, that was really kind of like, it was sad to hear, but also I felt comforted to hear it too. And that other people knew what I was going through, you know, at that time. Uh, so yeah, I, I literally thought like, what am I doing? Like, how am I, how am I cheating? Um, because she just said it to me so much and she grudgingly gave me, you know, good grades. To me, one of the journeys in the book is you're trying to find that self-definition, trying to find a way to see yourself that's genuine, that's authentic, that it is not just how people see you. Like you, you sort of keep looking at other people, black people and white people, like tell, figure out how I should behave. When another line that I really loved was, I never knew what not to do. Yeah, I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I mean... If you figured it out, like, please share. No, I have, I have not, I have not figured it out, but at that point in my life, you know, it was chronic. Mm -hmm. I've gotten less, I've gotten a little less concerned, you know, about what people think I should be doing. But I mean, everybody, I think everybody has that, you know, um, you, you, you want to please people to a degree, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there are some people that I know who just don't give a damn. Um, but I'm still looking for, uh, you know, self-definition and I, and I try to find it through writing. Um, I try to find it through like other things that I enjoy. Um, you know, after you go through, I think after you've been an addict, um, or after you've gone, after you've been in active addiction, right. You really do have to play catch up, mm. you know, uh, when you've spent <laughs> so many, many years, like, like just drowning, uh, you know, your, your personality drowning, you know, um, who you are trying to numb, you know, so you kind of have to, you have to figure out who you are. I'm still in that process. Um, I don't know that it ever ends. Oh, I have so many thoughts on this. Um, one is uh, I'll, I'll confess something, which is I tend to start in on guest books cold. I like to just not know that much and just dive into the book. Um, mm -hmm. it's more of a journey of discovery for me that way. I feel like, and I don't have expectations or few expectations. So I was right. reading your book and I was hearing you describe your childhood. And I was like, I wonder if he's sober. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause you describe something that I've just heard a lot in the rooms and I haven't heard as much from other people, which is this, everyone else got the textbook that I didn't get. Yeah. Oh yeah. I definitely felt that like, growing up i still feel it you know uh, uh today you know like how is everybody else 
doing so well and I am just this complete fuck up, you know, <laughs> like how, how is that? You know, I, I really did believe like that I was somehow deficient um, because, you know, I mean, for many, for many reasons, but um, yeah, it, it felt like how is everybody else so much, so able to like handle life you know, and it just all feels so overwhelming to me. And I thought that there was something wrong with me. Come to find out that, you know, a lot of those people aren't handling life as <laughs> well as, you know, they, they, right. they presented, you know, and I've, and I've learned, you know, we are all, we're all struggling to some degree, you know, life is not easy. It's great, but it's not easy. Um, and, you know, but I always thought that everybody else was just like smooth sailing. And I was the one who was on rough seas all the time. For me, I feel like it's a combination of realizing that, yes, everyone has stuff and don't compare your blooper reel to their highlight reel. Right. 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 But also I remember having lunch one day, um, with a group of people, um, a woman who, uh, kids were in, um, treatment and, uh, she was asking me questions about about what it's like and stuff. And I told the story about being sort of similar, a little bit similar to you, this crippling sense of not knowing what to do, of feeling, I actually, and I think you may have said this too, like literally there was a book I didn't get. Like, mm -hmm. and, um, and how, how crippling that was for me and how desperate I felt. And she said, uh, oh, and then and someone else at the table said, oh, well, everyone feels that way. And this woman was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> the other person at the I, table yeah. actually started going to AA like two months later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, God bless her. Like, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, she has, I mean, everyone has problems, but right. I have discovered there are people who don't think and God, I mean, God, I literally mean God bless them, but there are people that don't have that quirk of, of, of that self-consciousness being, I don't want to say this for you, but for me, I mean, I think, um, paralyzing, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. It's, it's bro. There are roadblocks. Yeah. For me. Like, you know, I have a friend, uh, my, uh, a very good friend that we've been friends since, uh, you know, I was a kid and she just has this uncanny ability to just get it done. Like, you know, she, um, doesn't, seem to have like a lot of self-doubt. She doesn't seem to have a lot, you know, like self-esteem issues. She just is in the world exactly the way that she wants to be. You know, she's not afraid to stand up for herself when the time calls for it. She is sensitive. I'm like, you're perfect. How did you, how did you get this way? But she's like, you know, I, I have my, my days I have, you know, yeah. um, but I think for the addict, it's, you know, oftentimes we're, we're trying to drown trauma, you know, um, and there's something about, there's something that may have happened in our lives that made us feel just completely unworthy from the outset. Um, and that may have been that trauma or they may be two separate things, but, uh, I know that I have always felt like, like I'm doing it wrong, mm -hmm. you know, and if I'm doing it so wrong all the time, why do it at all? You know, and so that was when I would when I would pick up, you know, I feel like the journey um, that I've had 
it is not that I've completely gotten rid of that hyper self-consciousness that is usually negative, but that it is also that I just know how to kind of walk through it a little more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, my, my motto is just do it, Brian, just do yeah. the thing and deal with what happens, you know, later. Like, um, I, you know, I still have struggled with anxiety. I still struggle with depression, but now I know what they are, mm-hmm. you know, they're not life defining and that there is not that you can get to the other side of it. Um, and those were the moments when I used to pick up as well, which is like when I just felt like when, when anxiety was tearing me apart or when I was so, you know, when I was so low, I couldn't, I couldn't think of a reason to go on. Like now I know, now I know what that is, mm-hmm. you know, and I know that they are not permanent conditions and I just need to get through them. Like you say. Yeah. Usually um, when we're engaging in some kind of self um, harm, you know, uh, it is, we're always just trying to deal with what the world has put on us. You know, everyone's just mm-hmm. trying to cope the best they can. Some of us have healthy coping mechanisms. Some of us have healthy coping mechanisms and some of us don't. Some of us don't. Or I'm trying to get, I'm they trying work to for healthy. a while. Like, like booze and drugs worked. worked. They did. Oh, yeah. They were, it was great. Absolutely. <laughs> I say that to people all the time. Like, you know, they're like, are you, are you supposed to say that? And I'm like, no, I'm not supposed to say it, but they worked. They, you know, they, they worked until they didn't. Mm-hmm. And then when they didn't, I still kept doing it. You know, um, so yeah, they were, they were, uh, they were definitely effective for a while. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't do them. Come on. Like, right. we wouldn't do it if it, it wasn't helping in some way, at least at mm-hmm. first. Right. Yeah. I recently had a conversation with somebody who was, who's, who's not an addict and, and doesn't really know much about addiction, but you know, he was saying like, oh, that must, you know, you were like, um, high all the time. It must've been fun. And I was like, <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like being an addict is the least fun thing I can think of. Like there's nothing fun about it. Now I find that as a, a common, um, mm-hmm. you know, thing that people do, they conflate drugs and alcohol with partying. Cause that's the only context in which they know it. You know, uh, they go to Vegas and they do some drugs and they drink and then they, then they leave Vegas and they don't do it anymore. But I'm like, some of us are trying to stay in Vegas, you know, all the time. Uh, but that doesn't mean we're partying in Vegas, you know. I'm interested in talking about the you know the ways we we deal with what the world has dealt us because you have some revelations about your father in the book. One line I really, one line I really loved is you were talking about how you know the world must have dealt him first of all living under white supremacy, and then anxiety, probably depression. And the line I loved is, there is no thing on earth more dangerous than a man who refuses to accept he is carrying those loads. Yeah. Because everyone else has to carry them for him one way or another. Yeah. I believe that to be absolutely true. I think, you know, as men, you know, and... uh, we are just taught that anything that you feel other than, you know, maybe anger or lust um, are the wrong feelings. The tender feelings are for girls. Um, and, you know, there's a million names that we call each other when we step outside of those lines. Sissy, punk, pussy, you know, I mean, there's a million, 
there's, you know, men have a million ways to insult each other uh, when we are not acting like men. But I find that one, when you keep pushing those emotions down, those hurt feelings, those um, the, the, the sadness, the depression, the, the, the feelings of rejection, the, you know, whatever, you know, they are going to come out one way or another. And they are going to come out in a way um, that may affect you, but they always will affect somebody else, you know, whether it be suicide, whether it be, you know, uh, causing harm to someone else, you know, though it's not, it's not natural, you know, this idea that we put out there for the, the way that men are supposed to behave. It's not a natural thing. Um, it is something that we've adopted for God knows what reason. Um, and it is unhealthy. Um, I also think that um, it is unhealthy because, you know, what kind of life is that, you know, where you're not feeling things, you know, that's, that, to me, that feels like, you know, somebody hands you a coloring book and you just do nothing with it, you know, uh, you know, you got crayons in a coloring book and like, you just do nothing, you know, like, and your images all just end up black and white. You can be coloring in your life all the time with feelings and emotions, I mean, and silliness and, and sadness and, you know, <clears throat> so many things um, that our, our culture tells you not to touch the crayons, you know. It's just, it feels like an un, unfulfilling life to me. And it, it may seem like a bit of a silly metaphor, but I'll, you brought it up, so I'll use it, which is if you don't use those crayons, someone will take them away. Yeah. And that's you know. sort of what happened with your father in terms of like his emotional range, it feels like. Because you yeah. write some be- I mean, beautifully about him comforting you some, like when you were a kid. Yeah. I think that there was a window, you know, where I, w- I got to be, you know, <clears throat> precious to him. But then after, at a certain point, like in a very, in very early, you know, um, it was time to start acting like a man. You know, as, as I say, like with Tuan, it's time to start acting like a man. Um, so, you know, and eventually, you know, life takes all of our crayons away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody gets out, nobody gets out with crayons, yeah. you know. Um, so why not, why not try to lead the most, you know, embrace all of the feelings as opposed to, 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 you know, just shunting the feelings off to the point, to the point where they're going to, at some point they're going to affect you, you know, in one way or another. I remember one time, um, I was walking down the street and there was a man and a woman having an argument. And she was like in the house and apparently she had like locked him out and it was like a big old situation. Uh, and he was just crying. Like mm-hmm. he was begging her to like, let him back in. Like they can talk it out. And I remember his, his friends had come over like two or three of his friends. And the only thing they were focused on was to get him to stop crying. Shut up. You sound like a bitch. Stop crying. Right. And he was, I mean, it was uncontrollable for him. Like, I mean, he just, he, he loved this woman inside um, of this house. And that's the, nobody was comforting him. Nobody was saying like, you know, let's go get a cup of coffee. We, you know, come back to my house. You, they were all trying to get him to stop publicly crying. I remember that that stuck with me, um, that he's not allowed to feel what he's feeling right now. Um, they're going to shove it down. 
to the point where he either hurts himself or hurts her, you know? And do you want to talk a little bit about what, what wound up happening with your father? With those father, black and white know, crayons? Well, I just feel like my father, because of the roles that he thought he was supposed to play in this life, did not experience much joy in life. And I feel like he, he died in, in some ways by his own hand. His health started to fail um, and he didn't do anything about it. You know, I think that's because he was depressed. Um, he didn't have, you know, joie de vivre. He didn't, he didn't feel like, you know, there was anything really worth hanging around for. So I think that ha- had he grabbed those crayons and had reached out to people and developed relationships that were deeper, you know, that, that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. You know, he died pretty young. There's a scene when you're by his deathbed that's, um, I'm going to say, ironically affecting to me. Because it's a little bit about how you're searching to feel something for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the time, I didn't feel mm-hmm. anything for him because our relationship was very distant right and he didn't really know me and i didn't really know him right um at the time my father died i mean he knew nothing about my life um and i didn't know him but now i know now i have a broader picture you know that that i'm that i'm older you know um now i know what he was going through and it makes me feel incredible love for him Mm. you know um, to, to many people, my father comes off as the villain, you know, in this story, but, you know, I think that he was afraid. I think that he was, um, anxious. I think that he was depressed. I think that he didn't know, he didn't have the, the toolkit to work with through those emotions. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't allowed to access it. Um, as many men aren't, you know, uh, are, are told they're not allowed to access it. They're not allowed to work through these feelings, but, you know, I, you know, I have cried for my father, you know, I, many, many, many years after his death, you know, in writing this book, I, you know, I cried for my father because he, he wasn't a bad man. Mm-hmm. I think he was a man who was um, a, a victim of, of this culture of manliness mm-hmm. and what, and how empty it is, you know, and, and I think a lot of, no, and he had a he had an incredibly abusive father, you know, mm-hmm. which I also found out while writing this book. Um, you know, just violent, you know, and, and many, 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 and, and emotionally abusive. And, um, so I think that having that knowledge helps me understand him a little bit more. I don't want to leave your mother out. My mother, my mom, first of all, is um, she's doing well. Um, <laughs> She was with me at a book signing the other night. And she was like, oh, my God, she's a celebrity. Um, you know, my mother, I think, is like a lot of women of her time, you know, was undone by patriarchy. Um, you know, she and as you say, like we um, we find out things about our parents, you know, when we get older. And it was a 
you know, and it was a revelation to me to find out that my mom didn't just spring into existence <laughs> after I was born, you know, like she was there for a while and she had hopes and she had dreams and she had um, things that she wanted to do with her life. And then she made one mistake, you know, um, and that just changed the course of everything for her. I think she, she handled it the only way she knew how. That's the thing about parents, you know, we may resent them, but most of us, for most of us, not all of us, um, our parents were just doing the best they knew how, you know? Um, and then you, then you, like, what happens is you reach that age, you know, when your parents were parenting you, you know, like, and you realize, like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, <laughs> at, at 51. They couldn't have known what they were doing, you know? They were just winging it day by day, you know? And so my mother is uh, an incredibly sweet um, and shy woman but you don't want to fuck with her either you know um she's very ladylike the thing about my mother is she's very genteel she's a she's a, a typical sort of church going uh old black lady but she's seen some stuff you know and she's lived through some stuff and she's lived through some heartbreak um and i am you know the reason that i think i was so bookish when i was a kid is because she she was constantly reading. She loved like Agatha Christie novels and uh, Stephen King and Dean Koontz. She read all this really spooky stuff. I don't know why, but um, she, just, <laughs> she always was reading and I was, I always wanted to be reading with her too. So she's just a really a great person. I think this is a good place for us to take a quick break. We'll be right back. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Beta Brand. I think a lot of us can agree that one of the only good things we'll miss about the pandemic is not having to wear pants or like, you know, real pants. Well, with Beta Brand, you still don't have to wear real pants. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are designed with a fit and flexibility of yoga pants, but they look like professional dress pants. They're amazingly soft and stretchy and absolutely effortless. Just throw a pair on, add a cute top, you'll be set for the day. There are tons of styles to choose from, like straight leg, skinny, cropped, bootleg, and more, and colors from classic black to fun prints like houndstooth, and they also have like a cat tooth, it's little cat faces, and they even have denim styles. Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are perfect for whatever you need to get done that day, whether you're sitting at a desk for eight hours, though you shouldn't sit for eight hours straight, working with kids and bending and kneeling all day, or maybe you're a photographer and you need to squat to get that perfect shot. Whatever the case, you're going to look good and feel great doing it. These pants are made of wrinkle-resistant stretch knit fabric, so they look good all day and travel incredibly well. They're machine washable and don't need to be ironed, and they have pockets. Some of them have lots of pockets. We're talking comfort and function. No more fake pockets that are sewn shut. These pants are designed for real women who need real pockets. New colors, patterns, and styles are coming out all the time. Be sure to keep your eye out for limited time new releases because they sell out fast. While you're at betabrand.com, make sure to check out Beta Brand's ultra flattering tops, skirts, dresses, and more. The dress pant yoga pants are just the tip of the iceberg. Right now, our listeners can get 30% off their Beta Brand orders when you go to betabrand.com slash WFLT. That's betabrand, B-E-T-A-B-R-A. A-N-D.com slash W-F-L-T for 30% off your order for a limited time. And when you use our special URL, you're supporting the show too. Please support the show. Find out why so many women are ditching typical work pants for Beta Brands dress pants, yoga pants. 
Go to betabrand.com slash WFLT for 30% off. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Monk Pack. Healthy snacks have a bad reputation, and let's be honest, most don't taste very good. They don't fill you up. They certainly don't satisfy your cravings. Well, this episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram of sugar, two to three net grams of carbs, and they're only 150 calories. They're the perfect snack for anyone who's trying to eat better or cut back on sugar and carbs without sacrificing taste. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars have the perfect balance of sweet and salty and a crunch from whole nuts and seeds, but they're still soft and chewy. They come in delicious flavors like sea salt, dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. The best endorsement I can give these bars is actually not mine. I like them, but they are my sponsor, right? I gave a bunch of samples to my neighbor who is trying to cut carbs and sugar, and she loved them. She is hooked, and she is going to be buying her own supply. They're perfect for a quick snack to satisfy you without the guilt. Enjoy Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars for a quick breakfast while running errands or after a workout. And the bars are also gluten-free and plant-based. No soy, trans fats, sugar alcohols, or artificial colors. You're going to want to keep them on hand, so get a subscription for your favorite flavors. You'll save 10% off every order and never be without the perfect snack. Try for yourself and see. We have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering code WFLT at the checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident you'll buy their product. It's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product and then enter the code WFLT at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. With Friends Like These, it's brought to you by Ritual, the multivitamin company you know and trust. Protein powders can feel intimidating because they seem meant for bodybuilders and because the ingredient list sounds like a science experiment. But the truth is we all need protein, not just for our muscles. So Ritual's team of scientists completely rethought protein powders, what's in them, how they're made, and who needs what kind. The result is a delicious plant-based protein. It comes in three formulations for distinct life stages and unique nutrient needs, all made with the same high standards approach and commitment to traceability that Ritual is known for. Whether you're focusing on building muscles or just eating healthy, Essential Protein is here to shake things up. I've been using Ritual products for years now, and I've come to appreciate not just the products, but the company. When I've moved or lost a bottle traveling or needed to pause the subscription, I've had nothing but cheerful personal service, and that matters to me just as much as the product. Now, Ritual is flavored vanilla. It has no added sugars or sugar alcohols. Like all Ritual products, essential protein is soy-free and gluten-free. So why not shake up your Ritual? To make trying something new less scary, Ritual is offering a money-back guarantee if you are not 100% in love. Plus, my listeners get a 10% discount off the first three months. Just visit ritual.com slash friends and add essential protein today. That's ritual.com slash friends. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. 
Ashley for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You're a wonderful storyteller. Thank you. A lot of the chapters in the book, I can really hear, you know. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling at least an abbreviated version of one of um, the most impactful, I hate using that word, that's not really a word, stories for me, um, that really got to me, which is the story of you and basketball. Oh, God. Playing or not playing, as it were. (sighs) Yeah. You know, as I say, like, there was a strong sense growing up for me that I should be athletic. You know, I think it's one of the things that is put on black boys. Um, you know, if you are not a black boy who is good in sports, what good are you? You know, I think our, t- our culture teaches that where we're not valued for our smarts and our creativity and our sensitivity, whatever. I think a lot of it, a lot of times when we're talking about black men and we're talking about, you know, basketball, football, you know, and so I thought that I, there was something wrong with me, you know, and I ended up meeting um, a guy who I just thought was the bee's knees. Like he was foreign. He was beautiful. He was, you know, all these things. Like he's like, he walked out of, you know, the TV show dynasty. This was like in my twenties, you know, my early twenties. Um, and I, I couldn't believe that he was talking to me. Like he, he, came up to me and he seemed interested and, um, you know, and as I say, I avoided sports like the plague. And then I found out that really the only reason he was interested in me was because he, you know, growing up in Switzerland or wherever he was from, like was, was fascinated by American basketball. He was turned on by, um, black athletes. Um, and so he asked me if I played basketball and I just lied my ass off, you know, um, and told him I did. And I was just sort of stringing him along for weeks. Um, and eventually he just called me on it. You know, he called me on, he brought a basketball to, you know, our, our, our date and took me to a, uh, uh, took me to a playground and, uh, and wanted me to play. And I realized he didn't want me to want to play with me. Like he didn't want to play basketball with me. He wanted me to sort of play basketball for him, you know? Um, and what happens, I think you have to buy the book. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think people you know, can sort of, this is not a fairy tale. So <laughs> it's not a fairy tale. This is real life stuff. Like, you know, what happens is, you know, I think that what the most interesting part of that story for me is that I literally thought that some sort of like basketball gene would Mm -hmm. spring to life inside of me, like under pressure, you know, but what happens, you know, again, you have to get the book uh, to read the full, the full calamity um, of that situation. But 
you know, it's one of those things, and there are a lot of things in the book that, you know, I, that were sort of painful at the time. But when I look back on them now, I mean, it's, it's hilarious, you know. Um, I look back on that moment and I laugh, you know. Um, but at the time, I thought I was going to die. And, who, you know, who can't say that, mm. you know. Um, and I hope, I hope that I infuse the book with that with that humor as well as the more sort of poignant emotions. And it's so representative Um, of your entire journey. It is, you know, I spent a lifetime just trying to be what everybody said I was or, um, and I'm still, I'm now in the process of trying to figure out, you know, who I am. In the introduction to your book, um, the author says, room doesn't wait for the materialization of the perfect, sorry, I bumped the microphone. Room doesn't wait for the materialization of the perfect self. Um, I thought about that while I was reading your book because I think there's a lot of bravery in writing a memoir and being vulnerable at all. But to me, the bravest part of it is knowing you're not done yet. I don't think we're ever done, you know. Um, I don't. I think, you know, the greatest mystery you'll encounter in in, in your life is you, <laughs> mm. you know. Um, and, and I don't think, you know, I think that we get to the deathbed or whatever and we still haven't figured it out. Like, um, but it's worth the journey. It's worth, you know. Uh, trying to figure out what it is that you enjoy and trying to love people, uh, you know, as, as hard as you can, you know, and just embracing it. You know, I think James Baldwin said something about like, you know, death is the only truth we have. Um, and be, and because of that, you know, we should be embracing our death in this way that embraces life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I try to do that. You know, I'm not out here embracing life every day. Sometimes <laughs> I, just, I just lay on the couch eating crackers, you know, but I try to keep that in mind, you know. Um, and I, I, I hope that for me personally, it leads to a more uh, fulfilling experience, you know. Like I said, so for me, the, some of the bravery is is knowing you're not finished and yet putting a period on the last sentence anyway. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> that book that book is not finished at all. Yeah. I mean, I I look at it now and I'm like, oh my God, I it's just this it's a work in progress that happens to be out in in the world, you know. Um, because I think as a writer, I mean, you know, this is like you're just never finished. It can always be, you can always change it, you can always be I have I avoid picking the book up now because um, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, why didn't I do this or why didn't I say this or whatever? I mean, but at some point. You just have to go, okay, you know, it's, it's done. Usually it's your editor telling you. (laughs) (laughs) Or a deadline. It's a deadline. really. Yeah. It's a deadline. Yeah. Uh, And the book does, does end um, before you really get into recovery. Uh, You talk about it some, but most of your journey in the book is before that. Yes, yes, yes. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I mean, we've mentioned it uh, a bit before. Um, can I ask you what your bottom was? Oh, God. Uh, um, you Sometimes know, there's not a specific moment. 
know. There, there were lots of them. There were lots of them. I mean, the one that comes to mind um, is that I woke up in a doghouse. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean an actual house <laughs> that a dog lives in. And I, I, I went to my local favorite watering hole. I met this guy. We were both just completely blasted drunk. I had never had sex without being drunk. Um, and, you know, we did this sort of drunken, disgusting, like oily makeout thing at the bar. And then uh, we were going to go back to his house. And he said, I live within walking distance, um, which was a blessing because if we had gotten into a car at that point, that would have just been the end of it. But um, uh, we were walking and we just kind of like fell into this person's backyard and there was a dog um, and the dog didn't bark or anything. It was weird. It was very weird. I don't, I mean, it was all very fuzzy, but the next thing you know, I, I like, I blacked out and I, I woke up the next morning um, in, you know, in a state of like undress in this person's backyard in the doghouse so bizarre right now that's not the story that's part of the story the the story sort of ends where i i was telling a friend of mine about this i remember we were sitting at lunch and i was telling him a story and i was telling it like ha 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 isn't that ridiculous isn't that funny isn't that and i remember his face he didn't laugh like at all you know because first of all he's a friend that i've told many stories like this over the years he didn't laugh at all. He didn't think it was funny. And he said, you know, you're a black man and you were in a white neighborhood. And if somebody had looked out and seen you getting out of their doghouse and shot you, like nobody would ever say boo about it. Like nobody would, like you'd be another, you know, thing that we're marching about. Mm. Um, and I was like, ha ha. And he was like, it's not funny. And he said, you know, if you don't get help for this, like, we're just not going to be friends anymore, like, because you're going to die um, one way or another. Um, if you don't get help, like, that's it for us. Um, and I took that to heart. And my that's what got me, you know, it's one of the things that got me into rehab, because a lot of people, I was getting those messages from a lot of people. And so I thought, oh, I'll just go to rehab to shut everybody up. You know, I'll go for a week or two or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, and then I'll come out and I'll just drink normal, like normal people drink. You know, that was my plan. And it didn't, it didn't work out that way. But, you know, ending up in a doghouse, I think that was, again, that was just one story of many sort of like bottoms that I hit that collectively came to me when I was sitting in rehab, you know, um, that, that how many bottoms there had been. Um, and just what a horrible person I was. You know, I mean, in a, I mean, being an addict is not ennobling. It doesn't make you a good person. Like I was a liar. I was I was a thief. You know, I was many, many like just unsavory things. I was using people as like a means to an end. Like that all came to me in in rehab. So, yeah, I just tell the dog the doghouse story because that's the one I think that just springs to mind, both of it because of its ridiculousness and because of the look on my friend's face when I told him that story. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Public Goods. 
the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful streamlined aesthetic. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products. That's true. You could buy this stuff elsewhere at, at a lot of different stores, but I've never been to a store that wants you to buy fewer things over time. Public Goods has a whole range of reusable products that take the place of disposables. They have a whole section that's zero waste, and it will help you swap plastic wrap cleaner bottles and plastic straws. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on personal health and the world at large. They use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. We've worked out an awesome new deal for with friends like these listeners. Receive $15, that's $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident you will love their products and come back again and again. They're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Plus, right now, receive your choice of either a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable food wraps with your order. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S.com slash friends to receive $15 off your first order. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Best Fiends. You know what we're going to be doing a lot more of once we get completely out of pandemic time? Standing in lines. I will be sort of grateful for that, though. Standing in line is one of those few times when it's okay to focus on your phone, playing games like Best Fiends. And games like Best Fiends are so much better for your blood pressure than reading the news. Best Fiends is perfect for any time you need a little brain boost, any time you feel sleepy boredom coming on, any time you're feeling stressed and resentful at having to wait for something. Plane delayed, great time to play Best Fiends. Waiting for your car to get back from a tune-up? Best Fiends. Doctor's office? Best Fiends. With Best Fiends, the adorable, collectible characters just keep coming. And Best Fiends releases new challenges, characters, and themes all the time just to keep you on your toes. You will never get away with just using the same tactics over and over. But the really fun part of Best Fiends is how you strategically team up with each character based on their special abilities to gain points and items to level up your fiends. It's a little different every time. Download the five-star rated puzzle game, Best Fiends, free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Ultimate Ears Fits. I don't think technology can make you more productive. It can help you stay more productive. It can also completely distract you if it's not working the way it should, like when your earbuds fall out. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with, like the ear. Same as fingerprints, no two are exactly alike. That's why your earbuds probably cause you some discomfort or even physical pain after a while. Ultimate Ears Fit's custom fit wireless earbuds are here to change that. Now, how do they custom fit since you get them in the mail? The technology is basically magic. You put the new buds in your ears and you can actually feel the earbuds gently warm up. The tip of the bud softens and molds to your ear. It makes a huge difference. I can now do yoga with my earbuds in. I can garden with them in. I can scrub the toilet with my earbuds in. 
that used to be a really specific fear of mine that the regular ones would fall out. Ultimate Ears Fits are the world's most comfortable earbuds. Premium sound, all-day comfort. You get a guaranteed fit in 60 seconds. Ultimate Ears Fits will stay put when you're on the go, but also feel ultra-comfortable so you can wear them all day long without pain or discomfort. You get a guaranteed perfect fit in 60 seconds. Ultimate Ears Fits will stay put when you're on the go, but feel ultra-comfortable so you can wear them all day long without pain or discomfort. Put them in, connect to the app, and the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With eight hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are perfect for listening to your favorite shows, like this one, all day long. If you try Fits and don't love them as much as I do, no worries. Ultimate Ears offers a 30-day money-back guarantee. Plus, you'll get free shipping, free returns, and a one-year warranty. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your first pair of Ultimate Ears Fits through wireless earbuds at ue.com fits. Just use promo code FRIENDS at checkout. That's 15% off with promo code FRIENDS at ue.com fits. I am not breaking news here. I also went to rehab. Uh, that's not the breaking news. Also not the breaking news. Uh, you know what? There were a lot of white people in my mm. rehab. Rehab Mine tends too. to be. Yeah. Unless, unless you're to someplace that's focused. I actually want to talk about mental health centers that are focused on the experience of black people. But traditional mm. rehabs, if you are there, they tend to be really white. Yeah. Um, there were... I think I'm trying to think, you know, I don't remember how many people were in my rehab, but I think there were four out of all of us, there were like four or five uh, people of color. Um, and that doesn't mean all that doesn't mean black people. You know, I, there were just four or five people of color in my rehab, very white. And I, I've talked to other people of color, their experience of getting sober, sometimes, especially with the 12 steps, 12 step centered stuff is... I mean, they face some, they face the challenges you might expect in a program that was created by rich white people mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. at the time, you know, other rich white people. Again, not breaking yeah. news. Bill Wilson yeah. was a rich white guy. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think that I was lucky, like in the... In, in my rehab, like I could, I could still feel. I just sort of ended up bonding with the other people of color there. It wasn't as if we were like, okay, we'll stay with the <laughs> white people. But it just, it just felt like their concerns were different, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and also, there's a thing about being in rehab where you're all brought pretty low, <laughs> you know everybody kind of knows that they're there for the same reason. So, you know, some of the race stuff like disappears. It was the, what's, what's really been astounding to me is the treatment of people of color um, and uh, versus white people. I mean, if you look at it, I wrote a whole piece about it, um, about just how nationally we view um, addiction, you know, um, crack was not a national health crisis, you know, but opioids are, and, you know, there's only one reason for that. And that is because, you know, fresh faced white children are getting addicted to opioids. Um, and what, you know, I, I nothing, it, it didn't, when, when, 
when you know when people of color were dying and you know the cities were being ravaged by crack cocaine, that wasn't a health crisis. That was just the bad character of black people. You know, now when we talk about opioid addiction, we are talking about it with a new voice. You know, these people are victims. You know, of you know they're suing the company that makes the you know, the opioids and like, you know, it's just a different way that we view the values of life in this country, you know, in this country. Um, unfortunately, uh, there's a view that, that the life of the lives of white people are more meaningful and important than the lives of particularly, specifically black people. You would really have to be not paying attention to not see it on the policy level. Mm-hmm. But I'm also curious about the experience of those two states, of those two kinds of addicts on a granular level? Because you write a little bit about that in that Guardian piece. Yeah, I am. In that piece, you know, I I had a really great talk with a woman um, here in Pittsburgh who runs a mental health facility called Vision Towards Peace. Uh, Her name is Erica, and she's amazing. Um, And, you know... She talked to me about how when she counsels white people, like they already know about how much more capital in the world they have than she does. You know, so she's the one counseling them, but they kind of already, she can feel it. They already know that they are better than more, you know, than she is in the real world. I think that that happens, you know, um, a little bit in, in the rooms. Like I'm very specific about what rooms I go to. Um, I'm very particular about the rooms I go to. Um, you know, there are meetings where I know that as a black person, I wouldn't be welcome mm-hmm. in this city. You know, um, there are class divisions in meetings, um, you know, where there's certain, you know, there's a certain neighborhood that's near me and I wouldn't touch that meeting with a 10 foot pole because it's all, you know, sort of wealthy white people. Um, so, yeah, you find the same things at, in, in the rooms that you find in society in general. There are people who, like, you know, you know, I remember going to um, a meeting one time and a young woman had brought her mother with her. So this was a woman who was, um, uh, you know, uh, opioids were her drug of choice. Uh, and she brought her mother with her. And, you know, we were sort of going around the room and sharing and doing that whole thing and um, her mother shared that her daughter wouldn't be in the position she was if it weren't for the Mexicans. Well, yeah. I wonder so, who she voted for. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, I mean, I, and I just watched this thing unfold. Like she took all of the responsibility off of her, you know, little princess um, you know, they, they were, you know, they were, these are white people. She couldn't believe that maybe her daughter, you know, had some responsibility for her addiction, but it was all, you know, it was all the Mexicans who were bringing it into the country. And her daughter was just, uh, you know, an innocent bystander, you know, who got hooked on heroin you know, because of the Mexicans. So there are people who still have these ideas about, 
race and who is the good race and who is the bad race. You know, um, I see it all the time. And that's why I say I'm very uh, particular about um, what rooms I go into. Um, there is a conversation happening in the rooms of 12-step programs about race, or at least in the rooms that I go to, thank God. Yeah. We are having those discussions. I personally believe that uh, white supremacy is not compatible with sobriety. No. <laughs> but it's really interesting me, to me to think about this idea that one group is victims, one group is criminals or, or despicable or whatever. And to me, there's sort of a problem there in that it's very, if you'll forgive me, black and white thinking. Um, because I know white people uh, that have become addicted to opioids, rich white people who become addicted to opioids. And I will tell you that victim status is not helping them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that. I don't think that other status helps either. That's the thing about black and white thinking, right? Right. Right. But You know, for me, like, I, I don't think, you know, I, I have friends who are still struggling as well. And I see that their thinking is what keeps, keeps them actively addicted. You know, um, it is somebody else's fault. Um, it is never their responsibility. It, you know, and I don't think I would have, and I've been sober now for, um, eight and a half years. Um, and, um, I don't think I ever would have gotten here if I didn't look at, take a good long look at myself, you know, um, and decide that I have some, I have some responsibility in this too. I could, I could blame a million different things and those, it doesn't make those things invalid, you know, but it's a, it's now my problem, you know, and now I have to be the one to like, to fix it. Life isn't fair like that. Mm -hmm. I think that they, I think that they expect some sort of fairness. You know, from, <laughs> Sorry, from excuse life. my out loud laughter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the, at the heart of that sort of like mentality around addiction, you know, that they think that there's some, there should be some sort of fairness and it's just not fair. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. you're addicted and there's probably some really fucked up reasons why you are, but now you're addicted and what are you going to do about it? You know, uh, the saying out of the big book of AA is resentment is the number one offender. Mm -hmm. oh, I still resentment is what keeps us <laughs> using at, at the yeah. bottom, you know? Yeah. You know, um, and while I still resent plenty of people, don't get oh, me wrong. You're not supposed to uh, stop entirely. <laughs> at least that's my understanding or else I'm in okay. trouble. <laughs> but um, you work through just, it better. I think this is the whole, this is yeah. the whole, anyway. But it's a, it's an everyday thing. Yeah. You know, I wake up every day and I say, I'm not going to use today and I'm going to find some stuff to do. I'm going to write something or I'm going to call a friend or, um, you know, uh, whatever. Like I, um, I really do, um, understand, you know, what my friend is going through, uh, right now with their addiction. And I, I, I try to be there, but you know, sometimes you have to distance yourself because you're, you know, you're trying to stay sober too, you know? So, you know, speaking of resentment and addiction, one of the things that I think happens for a lot of us, and I'll just bring it back to me, happened for me, is the discovery of a new set of emotions, you know, like those colors, mm -hmm. like right. that I, I was playing with a, um, or coloring with a, the, the 16 box rather than the right. 164 box. Right. 
And my personal discovery was a lot about the stuff that was going on underneath my anger. And so it really resonated for me in your book. There's a lot of anger in there. And uh, justifiable. Uh, anger at white supremacy. You know, anger at how you've been treated. But I wonder for you, what's, what's underneath the tip of the iceberg that is anger? What else is going on? Um, oh, boy. You know, I, I think that way down deep, like, I do like myself, you know, way down there somewhere. You know. um, and I think that the anger comes when, some, when people are telling me that I shouldn't for some reason. Um, I th- so I think what's underneath the anger is just a desire to, to just become, you know, myself. And I, 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 I hate it when people are keep, keep trying to prevent me from doing that um, in whatever way they choose to do it, you know. Um, but underneath it is also, you know, shame. You know, I still feel a great deal of shame um, about things that I probably shouldn't even be ashamed about. You know, it was a shame that was put in me, um, you know, by outside forces, Um uh, there's there's a lot going on. I don't think of myself as a I don't think of myself as a particularly angry. Person, well, I want to maybe you know? just give that some context. I, when I say there's a lot of anger in the book, I feel like it it pops up in places where right. it's very, like I said, resonant for me, and a mm-hmm. lot of it justified. It is frustration, maybe also a better word for it. Yeah, frustration. I think is. But there's a theory, uh, there's this feeling that I I identified with of like what the fuck is going on. Yeah. Why is this happening oh, yeah. to me? Why did you do that? Right. Um, I think that, I'll, you know, in, in writing the book, I try to be, uh, for the most part, I try to understand other people and their motivations. You know, I don't always pull that off, but I try to understand other people and their motivations. Um and I think through doing that, I, I try to get to my own motivations as well. Um, that helps me spread the anger out a little bit more. So it's not, you know, so concentrated uh, on one person or one event or one circumstance, you know. So there, um, underneath is just this guy who's just trying to live. I'm trying to get all of my crayons out of the box and like people keep putting them back in. Um, and I think that's what makes me the angriest um, and or the most frustrated, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The book ends with you uh, taking a journey in the footsteps of James Baldwin. Yeah. Oh, that was so great. Um, I want to go back there so bad. Um, you know, I think that one of the things about rehab is that it's quiet. There are times when it's quiet. And I think as addicts, we don't, we hate quiet, you know, or, you know, I don't know. I can't speak for every, I'll just speak for myself. <laughs> like I, I hate, I hated quiet. You can speak hated, for me too. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> I hated, I hated being alone. You know, I hated quiet because quiet is, is when your demons attack, you know, and if you're quiet and, and God forbid, you don't have access to, drugs and alcohol, that's really terrible, you know, but I always kept a constant, um, 
fray around me of like noise. Um, and rehab took that away because, you know, at nighttime it's quiet and you're just there. There's no TV to distract you. You're just, you're there all strung out. It's like you and your thoughts. Um, and that journey was a lot like that, you know, um, I had never done anything like that before. I where did, never where did you go? I went, all, I went to Europe. I went to France. I went to Germany and, um, uh, yeah, France and Germany. Um, but France was the destination. I went to a beautiful place, um, on the French Riviera by myself. Um, and there was noise, but I was by myself. There was nobody to like distract me. I was sort of looking at life, you know, um, and I remember thinking, this is a lot like rehab, like here I am all strung out, you know, what am I going to do? Only this time I'm not, you know, I'm not confined to a space. I could go anywhere. What do I want to do? It was very healing, um, for me. And I hope to, I hope to go somewhere else by myself again. I'm never going to, I'm never going to go anywhere with anybody again. Um, I'm going <laughs> to maybe one day, but like, it was really, very, uh, cathartic. And I wrote a lot, I wrote a lot of the book um, uh, while I was there as well. Did you find anything out about yourself? I found out that I'm capable, you know, that I'm not such a big, huge fuck up as I think I am, that I'm able to deal. I mean, you're traveling by yourself, right? You know, um, lots of things can go wrong. You know, you meet some strange characters, like things don't always work out. I learned that I am perfectly capable of handling things and I don't have to fall all to pieces when the least little thing goes wrong and, and flog myself, you know, and self emulate every time I do something wrong. I can just keep moving ahead. I can keep moving on. That's what I learned. You'll hear my full interview with comedian John Hodgman in a few weeks, but he is so delightful. I wanted to treat you to his adorable segment a little early. Stay tuned to hear more about his cat, Lolo, on this week's With Adorables Like These. John, thank you for sharing your adorable with us. Thank you. I have one adorable and, and, one, and one pet, a cat. Though it is possible that I could have two cats and only one adorable, as you well know. Could you please give us the name of the animal adorable and describe our cat is named margalo which is not an anagram for mar-a-lago she was named after the bird in stuart little um we call her lolo she is a part a main coon cat but beyond that we don't know we know that that she has that main cat in her because she's got fur between her paws. And her primary quality is she's really not very smart. And I've had a lot of cats in my time, and they tend to be fairly clever. But what is so adorable about Lolo the dumb, dumb cat is she is really dull. She stares into space vacantly. And I have seen times when she will go sit under a coffee table and then stand up and hit her head on the coffee table. No cat I've ever witnessed has as little spatial awareness as Lolo the Dum Dum Cat. It's really, it's really fun to be around. How did your adorable come into your life? My wife, who is a whole human being in her own right, uh, was getting her hairs cut, and the person 
uh, who cuts both of our hairs, is fosters uh, rescue cats. And uh, Holly uh, showed uh, showed uh, Catherine, my wife was a whole person in her own right, a, a picture of this cat that she was fostering. And it was just known to Catherine that we would be living with that cat for the rest of our lives. It was just an immediate iPhone connection. So we took we took the cat in. What's the most you've gone out of your way to cater or spoil your adorable? Um, I was the only one who bought Lolo a Christmas present this year. I, <laughs> I am, uh, I, we celebrate Christmas in a secular way and no one got her a present. And I didn't at first either. And then I noticed that she seemed a little annoyed by it because she's not intelligent, but she is spiteful. She's a cat after all. And she just seemed annoyed that we were opening these presents. So I went and I got this little um, soft cat cup, like a little soft cat bed, but it's very high, high walled. It looks, like, it looks like a cup, a fleece cup from a, from a, a cat store in, uh, in Blue Hill, Maine, where we spent part of our time. And I brought it back and my whole family laughed and laughed and laughed at me saying, she doesn't want a Christmas present and she's too too huge to fit into that thing anyway. I said, just you wait. And a week passed, nothing happened. And a week passed, nothing happened. And then one day I came back and I don't know how she did it, but she got herself into that thing and was so happy. And both she and I had vengeance on our whole families. Is there anything better? (laughs) Is there any better way to honor Christmas than that? Vengeance upon (laughs) our whole family. What is Lolo's funniest or weirdest habit or behavior. We used to think that even though she's not smart, that she had a secret genius quality because when she saw a bird outside, she would make a very special noise, which you probably know, which is... And we thought that she was the only cat who did that. And since then, I've learned through Instagram and other sources that it is <laughs> it is actually a pretty common, though mysterious, behavior that when cats spot prey, particularly birds, they make, they vocalize in a very distinct way that is nothing like their regular meow. And we here, of course, believe that all animals are emotional support animals. <laughs> yeah. And how has Lolo in particular helped um, support your emotions, supported you? There's, I mean, we, we've all discussed it. You know, we, we, uh, we, there are four of us in our family, Catherine, the, the human that I share my life with, and then two rapidly aging adults that live in our house and demand things from <laughs> us. And we all agreed we could not have gotten through lockdown, which we all shared, uh, or at least this phase of the pandemic, without being able to turn to Lolo at different times and just say, look at you, dummy. You are so dumb. I don't know. It's so it's so terrible. And she just looks at you so placidly back. And I'm like, you don't even speak English, do you? What cause would your adorable support? I don't even know, Anna. This is, you know, like you come across truly unopinionated people. Just just bland, unopinionated people. That's what Lola, she's like, I don't know. I think she would, I think she would support the cause of treats for her. That's the one the, the thing she cares most deeply about. Could you possibly do her voice? Me, me, 
me? Now? 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 That's what that's our game. I say, when would you like these treats? She'll go, now? And we laugh and laugh. It's like later or or sooner? Later or now, would you say? Now? <laughs> we have fun. <laughs> And that is it for the show. We are a production of Crooked Media. Our senior producer is Alison Herrera, and Izzy Margulies is our booker. I lied last week when I said that episode was Jordan Waller's last episode. This is her last episode. I continue to be very sad to see her go. Please take a moment to remember, if you haven't recently, that we are all still in the middle of an ongoing long-term trauma, that humans aren't built to endure. If you're still tired all the time, that's because you're still doing a lot of work just to survive. Take care of the people around you if you can, and even more important, take care of yourself. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.